I'm Maria Titizian. And I'm Rubina Margosian, and welcome to the Week in Review for the week of September 22. In the news, 24 hours after Azerbaijan launched a large-scale assault against Artsakh, a ceasefire agreement was reached stipulating the disarmament of Artsakh's defense army and the withdrawal of heavy equipment and weapons from the territory. Following this horrific attack and subjugation of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, protests erupted in Yerevan, demanding the resignation of the prime minister, which have been ongoing. Two days before this latest Azerbaijani aggression, residents of Yerevan went to the polls to elect a new mayor. And full disclosure, Maria, we still don't have a mayor. Uh, well, <laughs> the, the last uh, thing on our minds these yes. days. Well, on September 19, at approximately 1 p.m., Azerbaijani armed forces launched a wide-scale attack against Artsakh, calling it local anti-terrorist measures to ensure the safety of Azerbaijani servicemen and to restore the constitutional order of Azerbaijan, also saying it was prompted by Azerbaijani deaths as a result of landmine explosions previously planted by the reconnaissance subversion groups of Armenia's armed forces in the Karabakh region of Azerbaijan with the purpose of committing terror. Before the attack, Bak- who had been continuously spreading misinformation, accusing Artsakh's defense army of sabotage operations. Armenia had, in turn, constantly raised alarm um, you know, throughout the international community about continuous military buildup on the line of contact with Artsakh and uh, Azerbaijan. The latest official numbers of casualties were reported on September 20, at least 200 deaths and more than 400 wounded people. The number of injured people among the civilian population exceeds 40 persons, among them 13 are children. There are 10 confirmed civilian deaths, among them five are children. More than 10,000 people have been evacuated from their native communities. And it's been two days now. These are the only numbers we have. We expect these numbers to uh, keep growing, unfortunately. And we know that uh, at least maybe today they're starting the kind of searches for the bodies, but we know that uh, a lot of the injured uh, and the dead were left. People in Artsakh were not able to retrieve them. On September 20, at around noon, 24 hours after the Azerbaijani attack, with the mediation of the command of the Russian peacekeeping contingent, an agreement was reached between the authorities in Artsakh and the Azerbaijani side on the complete cessation of hostilities. The ceasefire stipulated the withdrawal of the remaining units and soldiers of the, quote, armed forces of the Republic of Armenia from the deployment zone of the Russian peacekeeping contingent and the dismantling and complete disarmament of the armed formations of the Artsakh Defense Army and the withdrawal of heavy equipment and weapons from the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh for their rapid disposal. Two hours after the ceasefire, Armenia's Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan addressed the Armenian people in a Facebook Live. He said that the Republic of Armenia did not participate in any way in the text that was signed and was not a party to the discussions. He reiterated that since 2021, Armenia has time and again confirmed that the Republic of Armenia does not have any army in Nagorno-Karabakh. Pashinyan placed full responsibility of protecting the rights and security of the people of Artsakh on the Russian peacekeeping contingent. Since they were a party to the negotiation, he noted that conditions must be created so that they protect the rights of the people of Artsakh to live in their homes with dignity, although we believed that that condition had already been placed on them by the November 9, 2020 trilateral statement. The same day, Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev gave a press conference announcing the end of the so-called anti-terror operation. Aliyev went on to say that it was the Nagorno-Karabakh leadership who contacted Azerbaijan through mediators to surrender. 
According to Aliyev, he personally ordered his military to protect Armenian civilians and stressed that he had ordered his army to destroy only military targets and not civilian infrastructure. He said everything Azerbaijan did was legitimate, legal, and has ushered a new era in the region, adding that Azerbaijan does not have hatred for the Armenian people, but it was their leadership that was the enemy. He promised cultural religious rights, municipal elections, and education rights, not only in the seven regions, but also Askenaz, Stepanakert, and other places where Armenians live. Aliyev said he believes that the Armenian people know that he is a man of his word. He also said Armenia should understand that Azerbaijan acknowledges Armenia's territorial integrity. He concluded by saying nobody can dictate and lecture us and Karabakh is Azerbaijan. On September 21, this was yesterday, the meeting between the representatives of Stepanagert, the Russian-Turkish monitoring mission, and the Azerbaijani side took place in Yevlach. Russian and Azerbaijani media outlets reported that the meeting discussed issues of uh, social and humanitarian nature, and that as per the request of the Artsakh side, Azerbaijan plans to soon provide fuel supplies uh, for heating for kindergartens and schools, as well as emergency medical services and fire services, and to provide humanitarian support. According to Azerbaijani state media, the discussions also focused on reintegration of the Armenian population of Arabakh and restoration of infrastructure, and that an agreement was also reached to organize the next meeting in the near future. Uh, official Artsakh's only communication following that meeting uh, said that it was held in a working atmosphere and a number of issues of mutual importance were discussed. The parties emphasized that all existing issues need to be discussed in a peaceful atmosphere with the readiness to continue the meetings. And today in Artsakh, the fate of 120,000 residents is still unclear. Thousands still await at the Stepanagert airport. Many are missing and relatives are unable to establish contact with each other. Uh, during the last two days, the Office of the Human Rights Defender of Artsakh received more than 600 calls and requests to find their missing family members, relatives and loved ones. And there is no confirmation that the much-needed humanitarian aid has reached Artsakh. However, there are media reports, Azerbaijani media reports, that two trucks of 20-ton aid have been sent to Artsakh. We don't know that if, if it has entered Artsakh. Also, uh, we will talk about this later, two Russian convoys have uh, gone through the Lachin corridor, but we don't know what they were carrying and who were they carrying it for. Exactly, if it was for themselves or for those IDPs now at the airport. During a, a government session this morning, Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan said that the residents of Artsakh can have a real chance to return to their homes. There are also some hopes for the improvement of the humanitarian situation. It is not ruled out that larger batches of humanitarian aid will enter Artsakh today, he said. There have been certain agreements, the implementation of which should start at this moment. Whether it will start or not remains to be seen, he said. It is important to remember that the situation is dynamic and ever-changing, and it is important to stay on course with constantly up updated confirmed information. Well, since that life, the Artsakh authorities have confirmed that negotiations are underway with the Azerbaijani side through the mediation of the Russian peacekeepers to organize the withdrawal of troops and ensure the return of citizens evacuated as a result of military aggression to their homes. At the same time, talks about allowing citizens to enter and leave Artsakh is also being discussed. Right. And so at this point, as we're recording, the corridor still remains blocked for civilians. 
Now, there's a lot of talk about possible allowing of civilians in their own vehicles to enter and exit. To enter and exit. And uh, very important also to note that there's still no electricity supply. People are hungry. Some of them have been sleeping outdoors because they have nowhere to go. Those who have been, you know, we still don't know exactly where Azerbaijani troops are, how deep into, you know, Artsakh itself they are. We know that they were on the outskirts of Stepanagert. There was a video today of that famous tank that was from the first mm. war that was at the entrance between Shushi and Stepanaget, basically at the entrance of Stepanaget, being removed by the Azerbaijani. By the Azerbaijani, and that's a, and a, we know how close a that road is. Mm-hmm. that we took after the war that's that right. was not under Azerbaijani control. Right, um, and we went to Shosh and Garmir Kyur, remember, yes. and all the way to Amaras, so, and we know that those parts are now under their control. As far That's as we what know. we hear. Yeah, so just to make it clear, it's very patchy, the information. We don't have clear communication with Artsakh to know exactly what's happening. So everything that we say, you know, we try to give only confirmed reports. That's been sort of our principle from the first day of uh, the VVN report. report, right? Well, earlier in the day, Azerbaijan's presidential advisor, Hikmet Hajiev, had said that on the basis of voluntary individual choice, we ensure the safety of the movement of civilians with their own vehicles along the Lachin Road. Those who want to go are mostly family members of military personnel. Military personnel who voluntarily lay down their weapons are free. Now, this for me is very ominous, Rubina, because we know that there are lists that have been drafted of men, Armenian men who have taken part in the first war, in the second war. And, you know, we keep talking about women and children. And really, the men right now in Artsakh are extremely vulnerable because we don't know that at any point they could be detained, executed, Tried yeah, for we're war talking crimes. men. How about the young boys who all they did was walk on the Azerbaijani flag and they were detained? Yeah, imagine so what imagine. might await uh, people who had a bigger involvement in uh, in the in protecting in their protecting. homeland. Yeah. Well, anyway, Hajiev went on to say that at the moment we see that there are some individual groups and officers who are publicly declaring that they will not accept our conditions and will continue to resist. We also see that some groups are going to the forests, but we don't think this is the biggest problem or for security yet, Hajiev said. He also said that Azerbaijan is ready to provide all necessary conditions for the delivery of medicine, food, and other goods by ICRC via Lachin Khangandi, his words, and Adam Khangandi roads. Medical vehicles can also come from Armenia for medical evacuations to Armenia. Yeah, and as you said earlier, again, according to Hajiev, work is underway with the Russian peacekeepers to collect the bodies of combatants left on the field, but he forgot to say that there are civilians that have been left for dead. Uh, or have been killed uh, and are missing. We are expecting additional personnel from the ICRC Geneva office, he said. We also support sending of additional personnel from the ICRC Baku office to the Stepanagert. He keeps saying Khangendi Stepanagert office. Eteri Masaryan, the head of the public relations of the ICRC Arsakh office, has confirmed that nine wounded were transferred from Martuni to Stepanagert today through the Red Cross. Uh, and this was also confirmed by the Armenia office of the Red Cross. And, you know, Ardak Beklarian kept saying that so many people's lives would have been saved right. if they were not left out without help and mm-hmm. medical help if they were brought to Stepanagert and people could reach them in the last couple yeah, of days. And I think it's also important to note that there is so much misinformation right now. Like every day we're asking each other, did you hear this? There's a story of this particular person being killed. There's a stories of children being beheaded, villages under that are completely surrounded. 
We cannot confirm any of these things yet, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately. I don't want us to ever have to confirm that. But I'm also kind of waiting for uh, the report from the Human Rights Defenders Office of Armenia that yesterday said that there's like grave instances of human rights mm-hmm. violations. So and they know, you know something, but we don't mm-hmm. know yet. Well, today the Armenian government passed a decision about a humanitarian station being set up in Gornitsor in the Sunik region of Armenia. This is at the entrance of the Lachin Corridor. The station is to address the humanitarian crisis uh, in Artsakh, unite the efforts of international organizations, and to support the work of human rights organizations and international media aimed at the opening of the Lachin Corridor. And speaking of international organizations, we haven't heard anything from from UNICEF, for example, or from UNHCR at the moment, or from the UN bodies in Yerevan. You know, this leave no one behind motto is only for certain areas of the world, I suppose, because these people have been left behind, our people have been left behind. Well, with the UN, we're kind of used to, UN army, (laughs) we're kind of used to it. Well, for this purpose, for setting up the headquarters in Kornizor, the government allocated 15,911,000 drums, which is about $40,000 to set it up. This was allocated from the state reserve fund. Yeah, we know that those tents have been set up uh, weeks ago, but there was nothing there. We had one of our uh, foreign journalist colleagues who who was there and said, you know, those tents are there, but what what does it mean they don't lead anywhere or no one comes to (laughs) but uh, i guess they're expecting the situation to to change because the decision is from august and the Mm -hmm. tents have been there before well the european court of human rights has fully satisfied the request of armenia and applied an interim measure against azerbaijan this was reported by the representative of uh, the republic of armenia on international legal affairs the post said taking into account the fact that the situation in artsakh leads to the most serious danger of violation of the rights guaranteed by the convention and despite the ceasefire agreement reached on september 20 of this year on september 22 of this year the the ECHR satisfying the request submitted by the government of Armenia, an interim measure has been applied towards Azerbaijan. In particular, the ECHR obliged Azerbaijan to refrain from any action that could lead to the violation of the rights guaranteed by Article 2. This is the right to life and Article 3, prohibition of torture of the convention. U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and a number of other congressmen introduced a bipartisan supporting Armenians against Azerbaijani Aggression Act. The legislation responds to the actions of Azerbaijan by providing humanitarian assistance to the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, preventing additional security assistance from going to the government of Azerbaijan, and calling for additional accountability for alleged atrocities committed against Armenians. Specifically, the bill would repeal the waiver authority of Section 907 of the Freedom Support Act, banning most assistance to the government of Azerbaijan, it would also authorize foreign military funding for Armenia, develop a strategy to ensure the security of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, and impose sanctions on the Aliyev regime for its actions against Armenians. The European Commission is mobilizing 500,000 euros in humanitarian aid to support the populations affected by the escalation of hostilities. This emergency funding is in addition to the 1.17 million euros of humanitarian aid the EU allocated to the Nagorno-Karabakh crisis earlier this year and uh, a little section about armenia i think (laughs) 
The Azerbaijani attack on Artsakh was accompanied by ceasefire violations across the border between Army and Azerbaijan as well. On September 20, Azerbaijani armed forces fired against the Army in combat positions near Sotk. This is in the Gerardkunik region. Earlier in the week, uh, this is on September 16, Baku fired at Armenia's Jili position, again, in the Gerardkunik region. Since September 19, large demonstrations have been taking place in front of the government building and also in front of the Russian embassy in Armenia. Scuffles have taken place between police and demonstrators, some of whom were demanding the resignation of Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. The police have used stun grenades. There are reports of injured protesters. It's been quite heavy-handed, the police response. Um, the Ministry of Internal Affairs reports today that 84 uh, people have been detained uh, from different streets of the capital. They've been trying to close down a number of streets, and the protests are ongoing again today. And about the international response to what is happening uh, in Artsakh following Azerbaijan's attack, the international community actively addressed the situation apart from Turkey's unconditional support for the Azerbaijani aggression and the Russian initial both-sidism, but uh, now later clearly on pro clear pro-Azerbaijani stance. The international community has responded with strong statements calling Azerbaijan out for the aggression. Right. We've talked, you know, we've been doing these daily podcasts this week only because there's been so much information. We've tried to compile it all. We have spoken uh, about the Russian response. Um, and we'll just do a quick recap again, not to sort of overburden our listeners because we still have to get through the UN Security Council hearing that we want to do a recap about. But on September 19, Ministry of Defense of Russia reported that um, Russian peacekeepers had recorded numerous ceasefire violations by the Azerbaijani side. It, this is when it was a full-fledged attack. Right. It noted that Russian peacekeepers had organized evacuations of civilians uh, from the most dangerous areas, provided medical assistance to injured uh, citizens and you know there's videos they're showing how they're helping old people and carrying children and all of that it was a a really great PR moment for them. Well, there was also this, uh, did they know, did they not know moment because Azerbaijan had announced that they knew. Zaharova said, mm-hmm. we knew right before. Peskov said, we didn't know. It was a back uh, and forth. It yeah. was a back and forth. And still now, uh, to this mo- day, we don't know if they knew or not. Yeah, and then Peskov said that, you know, he, we can't say that this is ethnic cleansing. He said that Moscow expects Baku to honor its promise not to hit civilian targets. We saw video evidence of residential uh, buildings, areas coming under attack. Um, he said the situation in Gharapagh is now an internal matter of Azerbaijan. And hours before the ceasefire, Peskov also had said that Azerbaijan is carrying out military operations in Ar- uh, Nagorno-Gharapagh on its de jure territory. So Armenia's accusations that Russian uh, peacekeepers have not fulfilled their obligations are groundless. And we've seen the Russian narrative playing out not only in their state-sponsored media, but also from state officials. And, you know, some reports of or, or some statements that are almost like encouraging you know, forget what's happening in Gharapagh, encouraging regime change in Armenia from people like Margarita Simonian, which we expected, but uh, it's so blatant. <laughs> it's quite incredible. On the subject of Russia, on Wednesday, the Russian defense ministry confirmed that several Russian peacekeepers were killed. Now, we cannot confirm the number. There are sources that say four. There are sources that say five. We cannot confirm the number. Uh, The report says that while returning from an observation post, this is while there's a huge attack on Artsakh, the Russian peacekeeping contingent in the area came under shelling and all the personnel in the car were killed. Uh, there's an investigation going on 
about what happened and the circumstances of the shelling and it's an investigation between Azerbaijan and Russia, Armenia or Nagorno-Karabakh are not involved. And during a telephone conversation, uh, Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev uh, with Russian President Vladimir Putin apologized and expressed the deep condolences for the death of Russian peacekeepers and, uh, you know, promised to get to the bottom of it. Right. And so um, we're not going to get into it because we spoke about it at length. Uh, yesterday, Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan uh, gave a live on uh, Facebook again about the situation. He spoke about a number of issues. One of the things that he did say that has sort of been used by many people, specifically Azerbaijan, is that there's specifically no, during the UN Security Council. Which we're going to talk about. Uh, and, and that is that um, he believes that the population of Nagorno-Karabakh is not under direct threat. He also meant that at the current moment, after the ceasefire, however, when uh, Hajiev is using it or Azerbaijani side is using it, it they make it sound like, yeah, Pajinyan never believed that when they were attacking Artsakh that uh, the population was under threat. Well, he also said this because of it's kind of in connection with the uh, rallies that were going on in Armenia because there was news that was spreading saying that the Armenian side, the Armenian government is not accepting people from Nagorno-Karabakh, is refusing to evacuate. He also spoke about it. There's to recap shortly about uh, during his life saying uh, it's kind of like this thing that was spread uh, mm-hmm. by the Russian. Ki- well, he insinuated. Well, well the Russians were the saying Russian- that to the people of Nagorno-Karabakh at the airport. They're saying. You, Armenia doesn't want you. Armenia doesn't want you, so therefore this huge wave of anger mm-hmm. uh, justified, of if you hear about this, that Armenia is refusing to evacuate uh, people from Nagorno-Karabakh. Then he had to come out and say, well, evacuation is our plan C. We would rather the people of Nagorno-Karabakh have the right and the possibility to live in their homes in safety and dignity, uh, and we trust the security of the uh, Armenian people or it has been entrusted to the Russian peacekeepers. Now, this also sounds like a challenge to the Russians, but also... But then he goes on for 20 minutes complaining about the Russians, right? Saying so. how they have not fulfilled their mandate. So, on to the security yeah, Well, there's council. a word I want to use, but since it's a news podcast, I won't. It's it's just chaos right now at the moment. Well, yesterday, as you said, Rubina, the U.S. Security Council held an emergency meeting on Nagorno-Karabakh at the request of the government of Armenia. The Assistant Secretary General for Europe, Central Asia, and the Americas made opening remarks expressing, you know, their concern for the loss of lives, uh, especially of children. He expressed concern on the use of force by Azerbaijan. He stressed that the ceasefire of November 9 had to be strictly observed, demanded unimpeded access to deliver humanitarian assistance, specifically noting the vulnerability of the Armenian population, adding that the humanitarian crisis and human rights must be the primary and guiding responsibility and that the UN is ready to conduct a humanitarian needs assessment if requested. Every minute that passes, Rubina, with inaction, the lives of the people of Gharapakh continue to be extremely vulnerable. Maria, you spoke earlier with uh, Professor Nerses Kopalian about the Security Council and what his like, analysis of the situation is. What were you... T- right, so I asked, you know, this is the third Security Council meeting since the blockade. Now, certainly this latest one that took place last night was not only about the blockade, but the actual assault uh, by Azerbaijan. And, you know, the first 
to really yield it no, there was no resolution. Uh, we were kind of, dis not kind of, we were disappointed. Everybody got up and expressed concern again. Uh, and so we were hoping that this latest session would yield some specific concrete action because the longer we wait, as I said, the more devastating the, the consequences will be. So I asked him, okay, so we've had all these sessions. At the end of the day, what is the point of these discussions if no concrete action is taken? And let's listen to what he said. France called the Emergency Security Council meeting to address Azerbaijan's attack on Nagorno-Karabakh and the full-blown invasion of the territories. This is separate from the blockade and therefore the reason for this meeting was the more acute humanitarian crisis that was pending. The objective was to maintain a continuous condemnation of Azerbaijan's behavior and to also amplify in front of the international community everything that Azerbaijan is doing. More so, it was to galvanize international political capital and support for Armenia. Uh, the concrete outcome has to be viewed within the broader context of diplomatic developments and Armenia's continuous accumulation of international diplomatic and political capital. As the UN structure stands, there was not going to be any concrete action. And that is due to the fact that the structure of the UN and specifically the Security Council does not allow for immediate action until all permanent council members are on board. As was evident from this Security Council meeting, Russia's posture was very clear. They were profoundly pro-Azerbaijan, they spoke in the language of Baku, and in that context, no resolution could have been gone through because Russia very likely and highly likely was going to veto it. Contextually, these United Nations Security Council meetings, especially these uh, security sessions, should not be viewed as developments where an immediate outcome is going to be developed. Emergency meetings rarely produce that. Rather, these were designed to bring the issue to an international platform and thus utilize those to attain certain diplomatic pressure and outcomes. More so, even if there are no concrete outcomes within this international institution, Armenia does use the developments from these meetings to directly engage with the various Western capitals in convincing them to put more pressure on Azerbaijan. In that context, these developments should be viewed as part of the broader diplomatic toolkit that is being developed to diplomatize Armenia's security. And Ruby, now, you know, we were live tweeting <laughs> the whole I, evening. I remember. <laughs> remember. But at some point, because it was like one o'clock in the morning and we haven't really been sleeping much and been doing these 14-hour days, we just sort of puttered out at the end of it. And um, when Jehun Bayramov, the foreign minister of Azerbaijan, was giving his speech, Armenia's foreign minister, Arat Mirzoyan, sort of walked out of the chambers in a sign of protest. But we didn't give a, a wrap-up of Bayramov of Turkey. And then, of course, Germany was the final uh, speaker. And among the speeches, given, which was surprising to us or unexpected, came out, you know, guns ablazing almost. So I asked Nurses, how can we understand Germany's very strong response? And this is what he said. There have been uh, quite a bit of reports uh, that Germany has become uh, extremely uh, frustrated and feel that 
Azerbaijan both misled the German foreign ministry, but worse than that, proceeded to collude with the Russians against what Germany considered to be Europe's interest in the region. In that context, uh, Germany's engagement uh, on this topic has been slowly developing the last four or five months, and it became more acutely involved when the European Observer Mission was sent to Armenia. So German involvement had been primarily institutional and through the channels of the United uh, of the European Union. What happened was that with the uh, Azerbaijan's invasion of Nagorno-Karabakh, this pretty much uh, disrupted what Germany had considered to be the European and American-led peace process and what Germany considered to be a concerted effort by, by Azerbaijan and Russia to create instability in the region. So contextually, it was Azerbaijan's pivot to Russia that triggered the uh, German response. More so, uh, the understanding is that uh, Azerbaijani diplomats and their uh, foreign ministry and all the way up to the president's office had been informing the Germans that they had no intention of using force. So Germany felt fundamentally misled and there was quite a bit of anger in Germany's uh, foreign ministry circles with respect to Azerbaijan's behavior. In that context, Germany did align with France, both of them being the two most powerful countries in the European Union, to more rigorously advance the posturing of the, of the European Union. So Germany's uh, rigid approach should be understood within that context, both within the interests of Germany's own uh, foreign policy objectives, as well as Germany being a powerful actor within the European Union and thus advancing uh, simultaneously the uh, set objectives of the European Union when it comes to the South Caucasus. Speaking of international organizations <laughs> and vetoes, according to a number of sources, Hungary used its veto to prevent the European Union from issuing a collective statement regarding the humanitarian catastrophe in Nagorno-Karabakh, even though the European Union has been pretty... Mm-hmm. Members of the Union have been pretty well, let's, vocal. Let's give our listeners a little bit of context so that they understand why Hungary is doing this. Um, we know the, the Ramil Safarov case where um, Armenian uh, uh, soldiers were participating in a NATO Peace for Partnership program in Budapest. What I think it was 2004, if I if I'm not mistaken, and uh, Ramil Safarov basically hacked Kurgan Margarian to death in his sleep. Uh, he was obviously arrested in Budapest, tried and sentenced to life, and then a few years later, in some very uh, you know unclear unclear circ- circumstances, <laughs> he was extradited uh, to Azerbaijan with the understanding that he would continue to serve his sentence there. But what happened? When he arrived, he was given a hero's welcome, a, a better salary, is the salary rank, that he drew, home, rank. and he became a national hero. And Armenia cut uh, diplomatic ties with Hungary after that, and Hungary, which were restored very recently. Yes, well, that's the story behind that. And again, for our listeners, we've been doing um, you know minute by minute updates. You can check it out on our website. It's called uh, Artsakh Newswatch. We've been doing the podcast every night. You can go back and listen to some of those. We just tried to give a basic roundup of what's been happening, and we will continue to do that. But in, we also need to talk about what happened in Yerevan. Well, Maria, remember when Monday on Monday we were very worried, and on uh, Tuesday we said, I wish it was Monday, and we were yep. worried about this. Well, on September 17, the Yerevan City Council elections 
was marked by a record low voter turnout. According to the data of the voter count published by the Central Electoral Commission, only 28.46% of the eligible voters cast their ballot on that day. None of the candidates gathered over 50% of the votes which was needed. With 65 seats in the Council of Elders, a coalition of 33 seats is required for a majority. The vote count from all 475 polling stations had the following results. Civil contract got 32.57%. That's 24 seats out of 65. National Progress Party, this was Haik Marutian, the former mayor, 18.89%. Mother Armenia Alliance, this is Antranik Tevanyan leading it, 15.43%. And the Republic Party, Oh, not and. Also, the Republic Party at 11.32% and the Public Voice Party, 9.68%. And for those who know, this was a surprising result of the Public Voice Party. Um, and so right now, the, the issue is that there had to be coalition building for two or more political forces to come together to get... Uh, they need uh, 33 seats in 33. order uh, to elect a mayor. Well, this is the situation now. Basically, whoever watched the last debates uh, between the candidates, no one said they would collaborate. Almost no one said they would collaborate with the civil contract party, who has only 24 seats but needs 33 seats to kind of make a coalition. The only party that could potentially collaborate uh, with civil contract is the Republic Party that has eight seats. That means still there's some missing. Now, Haik Marutian has the National Progress Party, the former mayor of Yerevan, has 14 seats. So even though he has the second highest number of votes, he still needs to make coalition with at least two other, other, parties. Forces, mm-hmm. other parties. The other parties that are left there are the Mother Armenia Alliance, that is the very party also organizing the protests now in mm-hmm. Yerevan that are happening right now, and the Public Voice Party. So... And the Public Voice Party was the biggest surprise for everyone, Mm -hmm. I think, as you said, Maria, uh, with a former police officer who has a huge following on YouTube YouTube and TikTok, who puts on on this uh, ridiculous one-man shows. Using uh, a lot of... And uh, also, just during these latest attacks on Artsakh, he went live and announced that a whole village had been massacred, and it was not true. But that drove people to the streets. Because contributed he has, to that, yeah. Yes, because it, he has, like, millions of fo- followers. Incredible. So now it's basically up to both the Mother Armenia Party and Public Voice Party have offered to collaborate and make a coalition with Marutian. Marutian has said that, well, uh, if you give me your vote and I become the uh, mayor of Yerevan, uh, but we do not sign any uh, coalition coalition agreement. agreement. That's version one. Version two is that we go to... uh, Round two. Round two. This is where we left off with the Yerevan mayor elections. Nobody's talking about it today, understandably. Um, But we will keep uh, reporting and updating uh, over the weekend as well. You can follow uh, all of our updates on on our social media platforms. And like I say every week, uh, we hope you have a safe and peaceful weekend. 
we hope we have a safe and peaceful weekend and we'll be back again next week. And hope for some relief for the residents of Artsakh, Absolutely. for everyone who's in Artsakh, because the deprivation, the situation is inhuman at this point. Uh, we're forgetting or we're not talking as much that it's already nine months they're located. It's, uh, it's already so many months they're in complete blockade. They've been hungry, malnourished. You the know, yeah. for the psychological the, terror, terror as well. Yeah. Uh, it's just a miracle that the, the, the whole society, all of the residents of Artsakh, the whole population is not breaking down. And if they are, they're still holding on, they're holding strong. So yeah. uh, any form of relief, at least returning home, mm-hmm. finding their relatives, getting electricity, the simplest of human rights, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, they've been deprived of. They, they've been deprived of everything. Well, our thoughts are definitely with them. And one of the reasons... One of the things that keeps us going despite these very, I mean, I don't even want to talk about that, but is the fact that we are trying to get word out to the international community to take action, to assist in a humanitarian corridor, to evacuate who needs to be evacuated, who wants to be evacuated. And at this point, to be frank, Rubina, I don't know how they could even live under Azerbaijani rule, Um, but that's a discussion that we will be having, I'm sure, for many weeks and months to come. Mm -hmm.